So it's really a collection of stories where I just kind of interview people and then I wanted to just get out of the way, Lori. And I wanted the stories to be as pure and, and unadulterated as possible. Really to give Americans and, and other people to put a name and a face to this conflict, which as we all know, is the largest and most devastating land war in Europe in 80 years. Hello and welcome, I'm Lori Hardy and thanks for listening in as we talk with leaders. Joining me today is Kyle Duncan, he is the author of Hope for Ukraine, Stories of Grit and Grace from the Front Lines of War. Welcome, Kyle Duncan. Thank you, Lori. As, as always, it's great to be here with you. It's good to have you back. I'm looking forward to hearing all about your book. I am not sort of the typical person who would wrote, write a geopolitical book. I'm not a social scientist or military expert. My connection with Ukraine, Lori, is through our adopted son, Zhenya. And we adopted him from the town of Mariupol in 2007. Much happier days in Ukraine, Mariupol. It really is the Stalingrad of this war. And this is not just a pie-in-the-sky number. They estimate that at least 20,000 civilians there have been killed and over 90% of the buildings and infrastructure were destroyed. And so when the civil war started in 2014, the southeastern region of Ukraine, I think that kind of flew past the radar of most Americans, understandably, kind of a regional conflict. But it really pricked up our ears because Mariupol, my son's former city, was the front line for that civil war. And his orphanage, ironically enough, was only about a mile literally from the trenches and the entrenchments. We had a keen interest in that and we followed it a little more closely. And I did with a journalism background, you know, my way of sort of dealing with things sometimes is to investigate and read the news, pray the news, as my dad taught me. Fast forward, to last February of 2022 when Russia invaded en masse across about five to six different fronts, right? We all know about that. We all know how Ukraine miraculously, and to the surprise of the world, the little David army, quote unquote, of the Ukrainians was able to push back the Goliath. Since then, of course, there's been back and forth and the, and the war has kind of ground down to a bit of a stalemate at, at this point. But back in February, I just had this real uh, passion to use the tools that I was born with that God gave me to do something. I just felt kind of helpless. So I came up with this idea to do real stories of people on the ground, refugees, soldiers, aid workers. And what better way to do that than to actually go over there? So I spent about three weeks in Poland and a little bit of time in Western Ukraine. And I captured some amazing stories along the lines of the people I just mentioned. And that's how the book came together. I came back, I had a book deal. It was very fast. We wanted to get it to market. So I actually wrote the book in about five weeks, which my wife has finally forgiven me for not seeing me for all that time. <laughs> That's kind of the arc of my history a little bit with Ukraine and why I chose to write it. So it's really a collection of stories where I just kind of interview people and then I wanted to just get out of the way, Lori. And I wanted the stories to be as pure and, and unadulterated as possible, really to give Americans and, and other people to put a name and a face to this conflict, which, as we all know, is largest and most devastating land war in Europe in 80 years. Have you been back? No, I'm hoping and planning to go back. I have had thoughts about a follow-up book, which would be take me more in-country. And so some things are in the works there, but nothing's been completely nailed down. I'm in touch with a lot of people, though. 
As a matter of fact, one of the women that I interviewed, she is a very accomplished actress in Ukrainian television. She helps run the Odessa Theater Company. She's made a really cool connection with my son, Zhenya. So every Sunday morning, she gives Ukrainian lessons to Zhenya for an hour every Sunday morning. And she does that from Odessa. And there's been a couple of times, and I'm kind of hanging out in the background sometimes, and there's been a couple of times where Tatiana has said, oh, we just lost power. Or up, there's the air raid siren. She had to cut it short one day. And, you know, here you have a town of Odessa, which is hundreds of miles from the front line. But the MO of the Russian campaign has to basically bomb infrastructure and to try to knock out, you know, all the major infrastructure across all the main Ukrainian cities with electricity, water systems. And right now, as we speak, about 40% of Ukraine's electrical grid is either hobbled or completely out of commission. But that's just regular life for her. You know, she smiles and laughs and teaches my son the Ukrainian. And then you'll see the lights go out. It really brings it home. I have promised my son that when this war is over, God willing, sooner than later, he and I are going to go over there for an extended period of time, like two to three months. He's a welder. He's going to be bonded here in about a month. And he wanted to go fight. And I, I actually talked to him out of that. I said, look, you're going to be a lot more useful as a welder in a country where hundreds of thousands of buildings have been destroyed. They're going to be desperate for welders. And I'm going to go with you. And I promise that's we're going to play our part. We'll, we'll go. We'll find a base of operation and just get to work. And I'll carry bricks or do whatever you want for me. And I can, of course, work remotely from over there, too. So that's our plan. Can you tell us the story about the police vests? Yeah, I gladly tell you that story. It's it's um it's one of those things that just tangibly brings it right home. So yeah, I met some folks when I was in Poland through other acquaintances, you know, other Ukrainian friends here in the States. They they introduced me. So I ended up actually in their apartment. Um they had fled the country. They they were their teachers, middle class folks from from Kiev. They had first fled to Lviv, which presumably was a safe town, but then that started getting a little bit bombed. So then they fled to Poland because they have little kids. He's Canadian and she's Ukrainian. And so he didn't have to stay and fight, of course, because he's Canadian. But they introduced us to two friends that um, told us a story. And one of them is a gentleman from Chicago. This gentleman guy, I believe his name was, he said to his contacts, because he works at the school too, as well in Kiev, he said, what do you need? And he asked this of this one gal that he knows there. And, he, and she lives there and stayed there. She said, my brother's on the front line. There are not enough flak jackets. There are not enough bulletproof vests. I mean, you know, this is not the American army. We are the best funded, best equipped, most powerful army in the world. Ukraine is scrambling. There's not enough vests to go around. He went on a mission and he said, I'm going to get him a vest. So he had contacts. He flew home for a vacation from Poland because, again, he was a teacher, fled to Poland to wait out the war and then took a break to fly home and visit friends in Chicago. And then he was going to fly back to Poland. And in Chicago, he made contact with a local police association and they had flak jackets that they didn't need anymore. The warranties expired, whatever, but they're still perfectly good. So he puts a bunch of these in his bag, brings them back. He picks one out for this gentleman on the front lines, Dimitri, the, this gal's brother. So from there, the basket's on a microvan and it travels across the border into the gray zone between Poland and Ukraine. And there... Another bus picks it up. This is like a full bus, like a Greyhound bus. This is one of these bus drivers that's bringing a lot of the refugees to the border. Well, if you think about it, they're full up when they dump people off. Well, when they're going back to pick up more people, they have an empty bus. Very ingenious. 
so what the refugees in Poland are doing is loading these buses up with all sorts of goods, food, water, things like what I guess you call non-lethal elements like helmets and, and the jackets and so forth. So the jacket takes a ride now. It's like the traveling pants. It takes a ride from the gray zone to Lviv. And from Lviv, a little microvan picks it up. And a gentleman who lives in the outskirts of Kiev and knows this certain outfit and the command post where this gentleman is is stationed. He drives it through, I mean, bombs going off in the distance, putting his life in danger, gets to this place, has names written out like on a piece of tape, what equipment is going to which soldier, gets the vest to this gentleman, puts it on, he's very grateful. Two days later, my friend gets a text from the soldier's sister, and it says, not three hours after I received this vest and put it on, we were ambushed. And I took shrapnel in the chest. And if I hadn't have been wearing this vest, I would be dead. And not only that, he had a picture of the vest. I guess these vests, you can actually take the plated armor out. And it's like you slide it into the, the you know, this pocket. So there's blood. There's blood up here on the on the vest. No blood here. And then he, he lifts up the, the actual piece of Kevlar or whatever it's made of. And it is just riveted with holes, with pockmarks and, and bullet holes. He's a believer. And the Lord just came through. That's just one example. And I guess, you know, for 50 baht donation, you can have Kevlar vests sent to Ukraine. I mean, or for 25 bucks, a tourniquet. They're short of tourniquets. And tourniquets are, sa- are, are lifesavers. If you're on the front and you get hit, the mo- you know, most common way people die on the front line is they bleed out. And so, yeah, that the story of the vest, which is in the book, that's one of my favorites as well. We're talking with Kyle Duncan, the author of Hope for Ukraine, Stories of Grit and Grace from the Front Lines of War. I would love to hear more stories. One of them that kind of hits home is through my church, Light Church in Encinitas. Shout out to our pastor, Benji Horton. We sponsor an orphanage on the outskirts of Kiev. We've been doing this for years, 20 years, something like that. When the war broke out on February 24th of last year, a little over a year ago, they reached out to Pastor Benji and said, we, this is like the night, the hostilities and picture you're in Kiev. The war is just starting. This mighty superpower army is rolling across your border. Nobody at that time thought that the Ukrainians were going to be able to stop. We thought this would be like the Nazi army rolling into Poland. I mean, it was just going to be nothing. So at that time, the mindset is we got to get out of Dodge. I mean, we have to evacuate 150 orphans. We got to get them out of here. So they scrambled for funds. Our church was able to raise some, a sister church here in San Diego. God's people came through, so to speak, and sent all the money over there. They were able to rent these buses to get the kids out. So they get all the kids lined up on each backpack. They've got a piece of tape written in Sharpie is the kid's blood type. So this is, of course, if the bus gets hit, any of these kids get injured, they'll know how to do transfusion. So they load them on the buses. They're leaving Kiev. They get to the outskirts where the actual fighting is taking place. If you recall, the fighting never got into Kiev, but it was on the outskirts in places like Bucha, Irpin. So here they are. They're being diverted by roadblocks, Ukrainian soldiers. They can see literal the flash of artillery and bombs going off, not like five miles away, but like half a mile away. So they're in the middle of the zone. They finally are able to get out just when they think, okay, we're there in the middle of the country and they're getting away from the war zone. They're heading west toward Poland. One of the buses breaks down and they're like, what do we do? It's 2 a.m. We're in a war zone. We don't know when the Russians are going to show up. Ten minutes later on this empty highway, a bus 
pulls up completely empty. We're talking like the Greyhound type bus, big bus, completely empty. The driver goes, uh, what's going on? And they say, we've broken down. We don't have the room to stick all the kids on the other bus. And he said, well, I just drove a bus full of refugees to Lviv and then the border. Why don't you guys just get in my bus and I'll take you? <laughs> They're like, this is a miracle. This is so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. They didn't negotiate or talk anything over they just jumped in and they're out of there next up is it's time to let the kids stop these are little kids you know from two up to 18 they gotta go you know they gotta go to the bathroom they need they need a break so they stop at this sort of gas station kind of place with a little store and bathrooms and all the kids you know are shuffling off the bus and you know how that is you know i've worked with youth groups it takes forever to get kids off and on buses so they got all the kids off the bus suddenly two ukrainian um police cars pull up and like screech into the parking lot and like russian troops are two blocks away they're on they're headed this direction you have to get these buses loaded and we'll lead you out of town so suddenly they're getting all the kids out of the bathroom and they're loading them up you can hear the ping 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 of small arms fire just about mm, 200 300 feet away and it's intense they get the kids on they get them out of there but not only that two police cars they commit to take the buses, because it's precious cargo of kids, all the way to the border, they're able to go on the opposite side of the highway and avoid the 20-hour lines to get in and get these kids because of the ordeal these poor kids have been through and get them across the border. So, of course, you know, everybody's relieved. They're in Poland now. They're safe. They go to this, this you know, the angel bus driver and they go, you know, let me, let's have your, your information. We want to follow up. Here's money. We want to pay you. He goes, no, 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 I'm not taking any of your money. Uh, this is my pleasure to do this for all these children. So they take pictures from the side of the bus of the phone number and stuff and, and the company name. So they finally get these kids all the way to Germany, finally are able to take a breath and like, we need to reach out and thank this bus company and pay them. They call the number, no answer. They, they try to Google it. They can't find it. There's like the guy's number, no answer. There's no record of this company. There's no way they, the guy, they couldn't get a hold of the guy nothing to me that that's just an outright miracle and how there's someone above looking down and saying i care about you enough to get you across the border safely you told another story about a chaplain you know laura i've had the pleasure of interviewing or writing with or for hundreds and hundreds of people celebrities and every type of person colonel valentin Renovich is one of the most interesting people I've ever interviewed. And we've developed an internet sort of email correspondence. I keep in touch with him. He started out as an officer in the Soviet army in the early 80s. He was a member of the Communist Party. Because a lot of people forget, like, not everyone in the USSR was a part of the party, was a member. But if you're a member I mean, you go straight to the front of the line at the restaurant, at the movie theater. I mean, you get all the perks. Your kids get the best schools. I mean, he was in hook, line, and sinker. I'm a communist. I'm following the communist way. I'm going to raise my kids in that. When the wall fell, he and his wife and his young kids, they had a decision to make. What are we going to do now? Are we going to, am I going to stay? So they decided, well, hey, let's go stay with my folks for a while. They live in Chernayev, which is a town in Ukraine. A lot of people who are from Russia have relatives in Ukraine and vice versa. It's very tragic. These people, there's a lot of family ties on both sides of the border. So they moved to Chernayev. It ends up, 
he and his wife become Christians there through a little old lady who lives down the hall from them, invited him to church to become Christian. So now he's a Christian. He decides he's going to now join the Ukrainian army and he becomes a colonel. He's a high ranking officer in intelligence and tactical operations. So he's in the army and then he feels like he needs to go to seminary. So then he goes and he gets a couple of seminary degrees and he has a challenge from an American who comes over and he says, you need to start a military chaplaincy program here in Ukraine. And he didn't even know he's talking about. He didn't even know there were Christians in the army because in the Soviet Union, there probably weren't a whole lot. And so here he is thinking, okay, so he goes on a tour in the U.S. and he gets to visit a lot of different uh, bases that have chaplaincies. So he returns to Ukraine and he opens one of the first Protestant or non-denominational Christian military war chaplain agencies. And that's what he does. He has his finger on everything, the real story of what's going on in the trenches. Because I know it can be confusing, whatever news sources, you know, we all use, it doesn't matter. It's hard. The fog of war is pretty thick and you hear conflicting things. And one of the things that he told me just about a week ago, because I wanted an update and I was doing some other interviews surrounding the one year anniversary. He told me, Lori, he said that I was just like thousands of the officers and the mindset who are currently on the Russian side of the border. I know both sides. And what I can tell you is this is not coming out of a benevolent or non-toxic mindset. Now, to be clear, he's not trying to, to curse all you Russians or say it's a horrible country, but you know, certain people in the Kremlin who are animating what's happening on the front lines, he said, this is using his words, not a godly, not a good mindset or the goals there. It's all about power and territory despite what you might hear. And I mean, he's told me stories of, you know, his war chaplains, which are literally, you know, in the trenches, men and women, because there are a lot of women too. And the women like to have female chaplains, you know, in, in the foxhole at night with them when they have night watch. But he says that um, they, they can't train and get enough chaplains to the front lines fast enough because the commanders there say, we want, your war chaplains in our trenches because our men have higher morale, there's less fear, and our casualty rates go down. It's pretty amazing. So yeah, Colonel Karenovich is, is a man I definitely want to meet in person someday. I'd have to venture there are very few humans on the planet, especially officers who have served both in the Soviet army and now in the Ukrainian army. The perspective is unparalleled. Maybe you'll be writing his next book. I teased him about that. I would love to write his book because it is, it's a crazy story. And obviously we don't have time to tell you the whole thing, but it is insane what he went through. What an incredible story. Can you give us an update of what's going on now? You know, what's interesting is I actually have some friends in Russia as well. And most of the people that I've communicated with, and a lot of that's kind of like, I don't know, you know, they get a hold of your name and then they... They send you a, they DM you or something. And a few people are just trying to kind of get my goat, you know, try to get me riled up. And if you stay calm and just talk to them as a human being, I've actually been able to engage with a few citizens in Russia. And I can tell you what their perspective, I've asked them the question. I'm like, okay, I get it. The Russian perspective. Okay. But, and Putin, we've all heard him say is 
there are a lot of Russian people and Russian speaking people, and we're trying to protect them in these quote unquote Russian areas of Ukraine. And that's why we've gone in is because their lives are in danger and we need to save them. So my question back now, I don't buy that personally. I mean, there are a lot of Russian people and a lot of people who who are pro-Russia in that part of southeastern Ukraine. But uh, there's a lot less of them now than there was a year ago, I can tell you that. But my point is, I pose the question to them, why are you bombing civilian infrastructure in cities thousands of miles away? And they said, easy. If, if we can take out key electrical grids and infrastructure, it makes it harder for the trains to run and get military material from the, because everybody knows it's coming over the Polish border. It's coming over the Romanian border and the Slovakian border. So if they can disrupt communications, internet, railway, all runs on electricity, they've gone a long way to hamper Ukrainians' ability to be a good fighting force. That's their rationale. But they have no answer when I say, well, the collateral damage is literally tens upon tens of thousands of civilians dead. So to me, it's unjustifiable, but that's my opinion. And right now, yeah, it's about 40%. They just had a huge salvo the other day, Lori. I'm sure you probably saw it in the news. Russia, about once every three weeks is EMO. They will just send hundreds of drones in and different types of missiles. They just sent off the uh, hypersonic missiles, which are undetectable by any sort of Ukrainian air defense. So it's basically you're just a sitting duck. And when they hit, you get no warning of them. So it's really it's it's really insipid. It's just almost unfathomable to imagine what a lot of people are going through all across the country. That'd be like if some country invaded the our eastern seaboard, but started bombing Kansas City, Minneapolis, Denver. Like, what's the rationale in that? I'm curious what your son's take on all of this is. Yeah, it's very difficult. He has a hard time watching. He, he can watch news that shows like military, the military updates. But if it shows anything to do with civilians being killed, particularly children, he can't. He just can't watch it. I mean, I, we all find that hard, no matter where it is in the world, whether it's someone starving through a refugee camp in Mali or South Sudan. I mean, it's difficult. Uh, Yemen. There's been three different times where we have had a very serious, intense discussions with him to stop him from just jumping on a plane, flying into Krakow. Krakow's a three-hour train ride to the border showing his passport. I'm here to volunteer for the International Legion, basically. He was born there, so he would probably be drafted into the territorial defense because he's he's 22 years old. So he wants to be there and he wants to be fighting. The only thing that's really stopped him is he just <laughs> doesn't have the money. You have to fund yourself. It's not like our army where you sign up and they pay for everything, including the GI Bill which is wonderful. Lots of friends I know have been, you know, gotten their college degrees. You go to Ukraine to fight, especially the territorial defense, you're expected to bring all your own kit, all your gear, everything. I think they supply rifles, not sure, but everything else you have to pay for. Plus I'm like, you you know, plane ride, hotels, food. I mean, yeah, it's like five grand at least. And thankfully he doesn't have the money to do it. Somebody asked me, well, wouldn't you be proud of him if he went and fought for the his homeland where he was born? And I'd say, I think I'd be like any parent who fights 
for their people. It's war as hell. It's terrible. Yeah. Call me selfish, but I don't want my son to be killed. Well, we are out of time, but two questions. What's the anniversary and what do you want people to know? February 24th, the war has really ground to a stalemate. The Russians have made some progress in eastern Ukraine around the town of Bakhmut, which has been in a, a lot of the news, the Ukrainians really are liking it. It's kind of like the Battle of the Bulge. If you recall, Bastogne is where the 101st Airborne and other soldiers held out. The Germans said, you're surrounded, surrender. They said, no, we're holding out. And that's kind of what's happening in Bakhmut. The Ukrainians are surrounded by three sides. But what I would say is, so the war is not coming to an end anytime soon. For both parties to come to the negotiating table and to be willing to negotiate. They want to be in a position of power and neither side believes they are right now, territorially speaking. So what I would say is keep giving. It's out of the news. Americans, we, we get compassion fatigue, the horrible earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and we want to give to that. And, and there's a lot of wonderful things that we all want to give to. But don't forget Ukraine. And again, tens of thousands of people are dying. This is not a regional conflict, which is one of our politicians said recently in the news. It is not. This has repercussions beyond the Ukrainian border into Eastern Europe. And by we all pray to God that the U.S. doesn't get sucked into World War III over there. And so really, we need the Ukrainians to be able to defend their territory and come in a position of strength when they negotiate. And I, I believe they will be able to. And I just would say, keep giving through local charities, through your place of worship, wherever you normally give. Please don't forget Ukraine. Kyle Duncan is the author of Hope for Ukraine, a Stories of Grit and Grace from the Front Lines of War. Where can we pick your book up? Hey, all the usual places, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com. Com, all the wonderful digital and brick and mortars. Easiest would probably be Amazon or through chosenbooks.com. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. 